Hi everyone, this is Holly Herndon. I'm Matt Dryhurst. And you're listening to Interdependence. Welcome to the Interdependence Podcast. You're listening to the free version of this podcast. If you would like to hear the full version and support this series, please visit patreon.com interdependence. This podcast is ad-free and only possible through patron support. Thank you. This afternoon, we recorded a discussion with Mixcloud CEO and DJ, Nico Perez, and our studio was so hot that we had to keep all the windows open for our own health and also to keep the laptop from overheating. As a result, this recording is resplendent with the occasional child screaming or dog barking, but hopefully that adds to the experience. Nico joined us to discuss Mixcloud's select feature for directly supporting artists how their bold move to introduce payment splits between DJs and artists could potentially be taken further. Club culture under COVID-19 and the new terrain of artists live streaming, and the importance of building strong foundations for strong scenes in opposition to the one-size-fits-all model that's fortunately receiving its fair share of criticism online at the moment. Thanks again for supporting us. We hope you're having a great week. Ring, ring, ring. Hi, Nico. Hi, Nico. <laughs> hello, hello. <laughs> Would you mind introducing yourself uh, for our listeners, please? Yeah, sure. No worries. Um, my name is Nico Perez. I am one of the co-founders and currently the CEO of Mixcloud, um, which, in case you haven't come across it, is a audio platform predominantly for long-form audio, so radio shows, DJ mixes, podcasts, things like that. Um, and we are based in London in the UK, where it's currently sweltering, swelteringly hot and about <laughs> 32 or 33 degrees. So I'm, I'm, I guess like you guys kind of melting a little bit. Yeah, exactly. And for those, for those who are uh, patrons who hear this first, um, you're going to hear this a little later um, than usual today, <laughs> because basically, Nico, I'm going to edit this and then send it out to patrons probably tonight. Because okay. um, we had a meltdown. Yeah, because we had a meltdown yesterday because it was so <laughs> warm, and now yeah, we're each trying to like. Um, so there might be some screaming children in the background because we have <laughs> yeah. some open windows, but we're still going to have this conversation. It's going to be great. Exactly. So, so uh, specifically on on Mixcloud, um, one of the the kind of the kind of big deal, at least from our perspective on this, is that you're kind of the only platform that has licenses in place to host that long content, right? Like DJ mixes and radio shows and so on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we put a, a lot of um, effort and time into that. Um, and personally, a lot of late nights and gray hairs as a result of it on my side. So, you know, it was it was pretty fundamental for us kind of philosophically. We just believe that like if you're playing other people's music in your radio show or in a dj mix it, it is only fair and right that the the artists and songwriters get compensated for that as well um and so that's been kind of fundamental to for us kind of since since the start so over 10 years ago um and to this day i think we are one of the only platforms that actually um does audio fingerprinting um tracks engagement figures out you know what people listen to at a granular song-based level 
and reports out and pays out on a granular song-based level. So we're pretty proud of that actually as, as an achievement. Yeah, that's amazing. And I mean, it would seem like it would be kind of like an obvious thing to do, but it really it has not been an obvious thing in this space, um, you, you all being kind of the only ones doing it. So I'm wondering what about kind of your background? I mean, you kind of come from, you're a DJ yourself, right? Like you you come yeah. from a music community. Like what what is it about maybe your experience that made you prioritize this? I think it's probably two things. The first is that, you know, like you mentioned, um, I've been a DJ for 15 plus years now, had a radio show at college. That's where I met my Mixcloud co-founder. And so I think there was always this understanding that if you're sort of playing other people's music, there's a kind of value there. um, And -hmm. and you kind of just need to figure that out and need to get that licensing piece sorted out to be able to do it legitimately. Um, And then the Mm -hmm. other thing I think is that, you know, we just... Um, have decided to take a very different approach to, um, you know, there's a lot of services out there that kind of use the the DMCA safe harbor kind of approach of this kind of, you know, if we don't look and we don't know what's in there, then it's not, it's not on us to figure that out. And I think that mm-hmm. just, again, um, that doesn't really sit that well with us in terms of, you know, actually mm-hmm. building an ecosystem that 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 works for everybody. Um, so, yeah, I think we we've also benefited from investors who actually understand that and who actually um, understand that like copyright is actually kind of an important underlying underpinning thing across so many different um, industries. So, you know, one of our investors is a guy who 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 manages Nas and Hip uh, and Future, the hip hop artists. Others have mm-hmm. come from from DreamWorks, the the movie studio, uh, and so there's this kind of like understanding that actually, you if you if you want to do this right, you kind of have to make sure that um, ultimately copyright is respected and and rights holders do get paid, and and it, it all kind of forms part of a, a bigger ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the thing, and and then you taking on that challenge, it appears, you know that. You're taking on that challenge ultimately so creators or DJs or radio hosts don't necessarily have to, right? So this kind of perception that copyright is this crazy, you know, uh, inhibiting factor to the individual kind of goes out the window, right? Because someone can just go onto your platform, uh, post a mix, post a podcast or a DJ set, and the MRT or the fingerprinting uh, tech that you use will figure out how to get that money to, to where to where it's needed. It's 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 really cool, and it seems to us like, as you say, like it's more of a long play. Where with DMCA takedown request, DMCA takedown request, just to qualify that for listeners who might not be familiar with what that approach is, it ultimately allows for platforms, let's say like a YouTube or a SoundCloud, to kind of not take any personal responsibility for the content that's uploaded to their platform. And so ultimately then a lot of the kind of more punitive stories that you hear about related to copyright, right? Like majors, you know, hiring people or sending spiders out to crawl databases to take down individual uh, tracks that they feel might be infringing on, on copyright. And ultimately can sometimes also be flawed, right? I mean, We've in the past had things taken down because, you know, we used a SH-101 on a track and it, that perhaps coincides <laughs> with the SH-101 that, you know, the, the, the algorithm recognizes from a Michael Jackson song or something along those lines. Um, 
But a lot of these stories of like punitive copyright, it seems in a sense, are related very much to that kind of DMCA mentality. And so just wanted to validate your approach of like getting that foundation from the beginning, because in a sense, it allows you to have maybe a better kind of more honest conversation about you know, respecting creator rights and also respecting and enabling the rights of the curators of that content. Yeah, exactly. And so the 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 kind of model that we are kind of building towards and trying to introduce into the into the ecosystem is this model where, you know, the underlying artists or songwriters who are featured within a radio show or DJ mix uh, benefit from from royalties paid for when their tracks get played. Um, but then in addition to that, uh, we have a sort of channel-based subscription model. It's actually very similar and somewhat inspired by Patreon, where you mm-hmm. can subscribe to and support either an individual DJ or radio presenter or sometimes even an entire radio station. Uh, and that channel owner also gets uh, a share of that revenue. And so it's a really nice way <laughs> where everybody... Yeah, sorry about my little puppy. No, that's great. Yeah, that was perfect timing. <laughs> yeah, it's right next to me. Um, it's, it's a great way where uh, sort of like everybody's interests are aligned and everybody can benefit from that model, both the kind of the artists, the songwriters, the labels who are putting them out and the, the DJ or curator as well. And um, would you mind going a little bit more into how that model split works? You have a really good diagram on your site. You're, you're referencing right now the kind of Mixcloud select subscription model, correct? Yeah, yeah um, exactly. Would yeah. you mind going in into how, how that split works um, yeah. o- over time? Because it, 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 feels, it feels very progressive to me, actually. And like, it'll be good to just yeah, And we can also that. link to the diagram. Yeah, yeah of, course, of course. Yeah, totally. So, um, so... If somebody pledges, let's say, I don't know, ten dollars a month to make the math the math easy, sixty-five um, percent goes to the underlying rights holders. So that's the labels, artists, songwriters, publishers. You know, the the underlying music that is used within um, that channel, uh, mm-hmm. and then five percent is what we have to pay uh, for a credit card processing fee to a third party called Stripe. Uh, and then the remainder is split 60% to the channel owner and 40% to us as a platform. Uh, and when you do the math and you kind of work that out, um, it kind of comes to just under 20% for the channel owner uh, and just around mm-hmm. 12 for us. That's awesome. And am I, so, so this is actually something I didn't put in the document we shared beforehand, but it's occurring to me for the later conversation that we'd like to have around DJing, like live fees. But, um, is this novel? Um, I mean, I mean, in the sense of, I can't think of another arrangement in which, outside of like, say, record sales, like traditional record sales, where the split going to creator is coming from the amount paid from by the consumer versus, say, like right, a rate- standard royalty rate that would happen on streaming or a standard royalty rate that might happen on traditional radio. Mm-hmm. Um, are, there, are there any analogs for this model? Because it sounds very sensical to me, right? Like if somebody is putting together a radio show that accrues a thousand dollars a month, it makes more sense to me that the tracks that are, that contribute to that show are be, would be compensated higher than the proportional to proportional the income, to the income rather of the than show. the kind of like set per stream. Yeah. Is that is that uh, am I like having a a a, a slow moment or because that sounds like <laughs> that sounds new and good? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So so the way that we like to describe it you know, um, is, is essentially channel centric licensing. 
So it's not quite yep. user centric, it's kind of channel centric. So in other words, um, rather than like the Spotify model where you know everybody pays $9.99 or whatever the local currency price is, goes into a big pot. And then that's split up across everything that's streamed on Spotify. And um, you know, if you're Drake or Rihanna, that's great because you're getting millions of streams and that model works well for you. But if you're a kind of like, you know, maybe not Drake or Rihanna, more of a middle tier creator, like it doesn't actually work that well. And so yep. the model that we're kind of proposing around uh, a single channel and this, this channel centric licensing, it's such that it's kind of a one-to-one sort of model where mm-hmm. that $10 that you may pledge to a, a, a channel a portion of that goes to the curator of the channel and then whatever the kind of the pot of all the people pledging to the supporting that particular channel that gets split only amongst what is actually played on that channel and engaged with on that mm-hmm. channel does that make sense Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes total sense. I have a question. Are there any kind of safeguards in place for minimal per stream fees? For example, what if you had a brand that wanted to start a channel and because it's a promotional thing for them, they chart, they make it free or they charge like five cents a month or whatever. And then that makes the per stream rate, you know, almost nothing. Are there any kind of like protections in place for that? Um, well, two parts to that. So first, we don't allow brands to set up these channels. So it's it's only like Amen. legitimate creators. <laughs> um, and uh, and second piece is um, all of the um, the way that all our contracts and I think most of the industry contracts work is you have these greater of clauses in in the contracts which say um, for this channel we promise to pay the greater of. 65% of the revenue or a per track rate. Uh, okay. And when okay. it's a subscription, so- you generally always end up paying the, the, the percentage of revenue because, you know, it, it's more it, it it's ends up being more than the, than the tracks. Whereas mm-hmm. on an advertising funded um, tier of the platform. So if you're just listening for free, whether it's on Mixcloud or Pandora or Spotify or anything like that, there will predominantly be a kind of per track rate that ends up getting paid out. Okay, that's interesting. That's really cool. And we'll revisit that particular logic. Um, Actually, I I came into this discussion feeling that we had a lot of similar opinions about things. And now I'm feeling we have very similar opinions about things, which is really (laughs) exciting. Um, Specifically more on live fees. Um, This idea that, for example... um, I worked on a project, actually, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about Jesse Walden, who's a mutual friend who was on our podcast uh, uh, last week. Um, and we worked on some complimentary projects many years ago that spoke specifically on the idea of you know building code or building protocols that understood that media was worth different things in different contexts, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so extending that, I mean, what you're saying, uh, channel-centric compensation uh, uh, is making a lot of sense to me at this particular point in time. Um, and in my mind, I also kind of extend this critique to the DJ economy uh, as in the live economy, right? In a sense, the best way to tell how much your track is worth when someone's performing it in a live context um, 
tends to be how much per- money that person is making for playing your track. The DJ fee, rather. Exactly, than exactly. And this kind of greater than logic also comes into that. Well, I'm, we're going to get into spell that. Spell it out a little bit more, though, because it's usually like audience size kind of determines what the well, We're going to get into it later because I have a whole section that I want to okay. discuss with Nico on that. Um, but, <laughs> well, we, we could go there now. <laughs> sure, sure. But... <laughs> Why don't we go there now? Let's Actually, yeah, okay. There now. okay. We're already right. there. So, so we're going to spell it out, right? So, so when it comes to when it comes to the when it comes to the DJ economy, right? In a sense, one of the arguments that we've been kind of discussing for a little period of time is that you know, um, as sales have decreased, the value of live performance has increased, right? So you find mm-hmm. um, there's a greater emphasis on being able to go out on the road and perform for people. Naturally, yeah. in those circumstances, particularly when you're talking about electronic music. It's kind of uncontroversial to suggest that a DJ who does not necessarily need to make their own music has the ability mm-hmm. to perform more varied sets um, more regularly in each city, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Whereas in our case, where we're album releasing artists, right? We only play our own music. We, well, we only yeah. play our own music. And generally, I mean, we'll be very, it will be a very successful record if we play London twice, right? Um, right. But if we play London 10 times, they're going to get really bored of hearing the same songs because <laughs> we don't have a, you know, thousands and hundreds of thousands of songs to choose from, right? So, so within that kind of economy, one of our arguments would be that the curator is heavily uh, uh, advantaged by um, this situation because they can switch things up. Now, in most cases, and there's a whole minefield of figuring out what tracks are played uh, uh, just anyway, right? Like, do people submit track lists? Uh, mm-hmm. it, how mm-hmm. long will it take before we can stick fingerprinting boxes in clubs or festivals to be able to do it automatically? How close are we to be able to do that properly? But ultimately, in the middle ground, one of the proposals that we've been, that we thought about is that ultimately, you know, if a if a celebrity is playing a private party for a hundred people uh, uh, for Nike or at a fashion week, right, and mm-hmm. gets paid one hundred and fifty grand for their appearance, yeah. your song in that set ought to be worth, let's say, I don't know, you know, uh, say twenty five percent of their live fee divided by the number of songs that were performed in that set, right? That is mm-hmm. a far more accurate way to tell the value of that song in that particular context than, for example, audience size. Right, which mm-hmm. is one of the the determining factors. Um, anyway, so so we're we're throwing this out there because actually this channel specific thing is one of the closest things I've seen in the world to recognizing that contextual relationship. Yeah, I mean something like that does kind of exist right now uh, here in the UK, for example. The PRS and PPL will collect a fee um, from either music venues or festivals or, or concert venues. And it usually amounts to about five or six percent on the publishing side with PRS, yep. and my understanding is about eight to ten percent on the kind of sound recording side through PPL. Yep. Um, now, I guess the difference there is that, like, when you do a live event, you have a bunch of other costs to account for, like booking a venue, yep. travel, accommodation, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so, you know, I think that's why the, the those kind of percentages are perhaps lower. Um, but it's, it's definitely an interesting idea. I guess right now that model, uh, works by taking a percentage of the box office, which you could argue is kind of linked to the DJ or artist or who's ever performing. Um, but in the, in that, in that kind of example that you gave where it's, um, you know, a a brand performance and there is no box office, then it kind of does fall down. 
Well, and also you see hybrid models, right? Like increasingly, you know, particularly on the headliner side of things, increasingly, you know, the those large fees for large for well-paid DJs will also be supplemented by uh, sponsor fees, for example, right? So, you know, when you go to not naming a name, but when you go to large mega European festival, the box mm-hmm. office is like represents you know a a not a a, insignificant a portion, portion of, of income, income, but there's a lot of sponsors. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of extra money coming in there, right? True. Um, and true. And don't get me wrong, I I, I, I generally I, I you know I I, I support uh, PRO uh, uh, efforts, and I think in many cases, which we'll get into maybe a little bit, right? Like they also have this struggle of having to deal with one-size-fits-all protections for people, right? Where And there's always going to be unusual circumstances that kind of slip through the cracks of that. Um, mm. But but irrespective of like not, not trivializing how difficult it might be to put such a pro- uh, process into place, it's still really encouraging to see that that's the logic that you've, that you've implemented in, in, in Mixcloud Select. Like I think that just conceptually there's an alignment there that I haven't seen elsewhere. And that's very exciting and refreshing actually, because it makes so much sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's about ultimately recognizing that everybody, all the different parties are bringing some value to the ecosystem. You know, the people who are making the music, they've obviously created it. The songwriter might've written the song, um, you know, might be put out by a label. They are also going to get a, a, a cut. Um, uh, the platform that kind of helps, you know, power the technology and the curator who's kind of put, you know, the set list together, put it all together. So I think for us, it was always really important to like make sure that everybody gets a share of it and ultimately make sure that everybody is kind of aligned around it, you know, make sure that nobody is kind of left out or feel like this isn't working for me or something like that. Absolutely. And that's, I mean, that's, it's one of the kind of maybe the mantras behind us describing this project as interdependence, right? Because oftentimes Mm. I think for those maybe who aren't super involved, maybe in the back end of how culture works, that kind of interdependence of like making sure everybody's paid and aligned um, is maybe not so immediately obvious, right? That, yeah. Oftentimes you, you see individuals um, thrive um, and the story is one of kind of individual overcoming of something. And you're like, yeah, but if it weren't for everything else, they would have a yeah. much, uh, a much harder, you know, a much harder time. So, so speaking on that, uh, uh, when you, when you're saying that select is, is kind of uh, similar to, in a sense, the kind of uh, uh, patron model that you might associate with like a Patreon, um, there's a, there's a woman at uh, Anderson Horvitz called Lee Jin who coined this term, kind of the the passion economy, right? Um, this idea that now, as a result uh, of of certain developments on platforms such as Select, you know, there are people able to um, create direct supportive relationships um, with a decentralized, atomized group of people online um, and receive regular, uh, say, in the form of subscriptions or uh, in, in the form of subscriptions. Uh, regular money toward whatever passion um they have i i wonder in that so last week we spoke to um to jesse walden who i'm bringing up again who's recently started variant fund um with a focus in a sense on on this idea of an ownership economy um and one of the 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 topics that came up in that discussion was that in a sense one of the challenges we have with these kind of passion economy models of supporting individual creators in what they do is that ultimately over time, not even thinking about like financial uh, uh, ceilings that you might hit, right? When, 
an individual listener may eventually have to pay, you know, 20 to 40, whatever people. Um, let's just pretend that that isn't there, even though it kind of is. The more mm-hmm. interesting question, I think, in a sense, is a matter of hitting like an attention ceiling, right? Because we know this, we've been engaging with Patreon a little bit. Um, and many of the great success stories of the pa- passion economy, in a sense, in order to kind of cultivate that kind of community, they're putting a lot of work in on the back end. You know, they have discords and, you know, ultimately, like, it, it's it, it, there's kind of a, an approach whereby you kind of have to saturate people um, in order to kind of, or at least many people have had to have had to uh, take that approach in order to kind of make the model work. Um and our contestation there, at least a little bit, even though we participate in it, is are we going to re- hit a point where people just don't have enough attention to spare, right? Like who has the time to listen to 20 podcasts a week or 20 mixes a week for that matter, right? Um, do you yeah. see any natural limitations there or what has what your experience been since launch? What's your opinion on that, uh, on that uh, yeah. provocation? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's a really good question. And um yeah, I've been a big fan of Legion's writing about the the passion economy um, for a while now, since she first started putting it out there. Um, and I think it's very much kind of inspired by um, this concept of like a thousand true fans that yep. I think it was Kevin Kelly or one of the editors at Wired kind of first kind of developed uh, in the late 90s. And I think that's what the the internet, I guess the promise of the internet of what it could provide is this kind of like, you know, open democratized platform where, you know, people could connect one-to-one. And I think what we haven't seen until very recently is um, a lot of options for actually generating an income from, from that sort of like fan to creator loyalty. Yeah. Uh, I think that is a result of a few different things. I mean, I think one of the major factors is like, um, you know, the, the, the predominance of the advertising based model uh, that kind of grew in the kind of mid 2000s and early 2010s meant that, you know, everybody was chasing ad dollars. Everybody was chasing yep. like the biggest audience size. Everybody was chasing Google and Facebook. And, you know, that's essentially kind of the, 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 the path that SoundCloud went down. Um, and then ultimately, you know, ended up really struggling because they weren't you know, thinking about copyright and actually paying the people who were kind of featured in the underlying, you know, songs or, or shows or mixes. And so, you know, from, from our point of view, I think that the pa- this idea of a passion economy is, is um, needed now more than ever. But mm-hmm. I do, I, I do concede that like there are, there's kind of a ceiling to um, how much, I think ultimately like disposable income people have to support yep. and subscribe to their favorite creators. Um, I'd argue that like the, the attention economy side of it, like I'd actually say we're all pretty like starved of attention at this point anyway. So, or like st- don't have any attention left to give, right? Like we we're all kind of overloaded with information at all times. So I think the, for me, the bigger question is like how, how do we um, essentially have a model where uh, you can actually get, you get something that's different and I guess ultimately get closer. And I guess this is what you guys are doing with 
your Patreon or Patreon. I never know how to pronounce it. Um, <laughs> but, but um, you know, giving giving something special, uh, a little inside look, you know, an early access, um, a shout out, uh, something that like you know is a little bit more special and, and rewarding for people who are like super fans and people who are really really. Uh, digging what you're what you're into and i think that that is not gonna work like i'm not gonna like subscribe and support a hundred different artists and djs and creators and people you know to that extent but there might be like five or six or maybe even ten that like i really really enjoy and i'm subscribed to and i i see like i'm getting closer to them i'm getting i'm getting a benefit i'm getting some 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 value there that I think is worth it. So yeah, I think that ultimately there is probably a ceiling, but um, I think what we haven't yet explored is like what else can, you know, creators offer and what else can creators like, you know, get creative with. Uh, And, you know, I've been looking a bit at China and, you know, there's things like crazy digital goods and, you know, all these different yep. kind of ways to, to, for creators to like generate a bit of income. And so I think that there's, we're basically, I think, quite early days in, in this sort of passion economy model. Mm-hmm. It makes sense. And I mean, one thing that we've definitely uh, talked about with, with other people is, you know, the potential of, of bundling, you know, um, mm. w- which is funny because how that might look in practice is, you know, you could pay, 10 bucks a month for uh, two people's offerings that have some correlation with each other or some relationship mm-hmm. with each other. And the subtext of that is actually maybe the foundation of a different kind of organization or institution, right? Is that, mm-hmm. that ultimately in many cases, you know, we have friends, for example, who are uh, doing complementary but different things. Um, mm-hmm. And in a sense, it might make sense to uh, offer what we're doing at a lower price in order mm-hmm. to be able to uh, bring some attention to what they're doing too, you know, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and and I, I'm I'm really curious if there's any experiments to be done there because ultimately, I mean, it, it's funny there was there was a guy who wrote uh, a piece uh, and my, the name is completely escaping me, but he wrote this piece called the Renaissance Creator. That we also discussed with Jesse, and I was actually quite critical of him, and I feel quite bad because I listened to an interview uh, with him afterwards, like a couple of days ago, and I was like, oh, I actually agree with you more than I thought I did. <laughs> so I must have. Um, but but his whole argument was was how and for better or worse you know major newspapers now are pushing the names of their writers forward more so than they ever have done right mm-hmm. um and that what his proposal i believe he works at the washington post but his proposal is that you know if major newspapers ultimately want to start competing with a lot of these big creators on platforms they may might have to start seeing themselves more like record labels with stables of different people who offer maybe different vantage points or perspectives on a particular issue. And mm-hmm. it, ostensibly what he's describing there is it's kind of like a top-down version of what we're describing as bottom-up, right? Is like mm-hmm. reforming an institution to be strong economic links between different individuals um, mm-hmm. that are maybe mm-hmm. moving in the same direction. And so I yeah. agree with you. It's like right now we're still in kind of the early stages, but you can very much see how organizations or institutions or alliances or labels even can form from these kind of arrangements. But we're, Well, yeah. in some ways you have that with Mixcloud with something like an NTS channel, 
or something. Exactly. Right? exactly. Have that's, like a collective channel. Exactly. But I wonder if there could be like cross-channel kind of exactly that seems to be the collaboration next. or yeah, even if like yeah. the fans of, that follow multiple channels, if they could all then communicate in some way, that, that kind of thing. Exactly. Um, yeah, I would, that's exactly what I was going to say. I mean, you've got NTS, you've got um, Giles Peterson's new station, Worldwide FM, who have a, who've turned on Select for their channel, Dub Lab in LA. You know, the, 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 I think that in, in our in this space, uh, the radio station uh, is kind of the analogy for for, for a bundle, uh, or yeah. um, mm-hmm. you know, yep. the record label to a certain degree. You know, bun- like bundling artists, sort of different output together. Um, but I think, well, yeah, it's, it's a cool, idea. it's cool kind of to think through, like, wh- is there different bundles that might be possible across, um, I don't know, maybe genre lines or geographies yep. mm-hmm. or things like that. Um, yep. yeah, there's this guy, I think his name is uh, Ben Thompson. He's like, um, he writes a lot about like media strategy, things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he has this phrase, like the constant bundling and unbundling of the internet, <laughs> that like everything's either being bundled up or unbundled and it just repeats sounds about cycle. right yeah T- time to start bundling again I yeah guess. exactly yeah. he's just he's just sitting there like shaking his head listening to this conversation <laughs> well one thing that i feel like makes cloud really has going for it is that it um it, it really decided to kind of focus or i i am assuming this kind of focus on one particular community which is like dj kind of like dance music culture whereas something like a spotify is like kind of like music writ large. So it's like really this kind of focus, I think, has allowed you all to be able to um, create tools that specifically speak to one community. And this is something that Matt and I talk about a lot, this kind of like one size fits all logic on on the platform, on certain platform logic. Mm. Um, so yeah, that's just, I don't know, maybe just like a uh, something that we've noticed. That Yeah, I wonder, mm-hmm. and, and, and speaking to like the bundling and unbundling, it's like, I mean, it might be too crude or, or painting with too broad strokes to suggest that it was very much the kind of platform economy of the tens that introduced this idea of like, we're going to be the platform for everything, right? Like Facebook is like all your mm. social interactions. Right. We will capture the you know, whole globe. Exactly. We'll like Spotify is like, we're going to solve music as if that, you know, can be bundled into one term. Right. right? Um, yeah. And it seems in a sense by you guys playing the long game, um, uh, and having all those licenses in place to be able to to wait that stuff out, it seems like uh, at least I would hope, um, you know, hopefully the twenty twenties are the exact opposite, right? It's it's yeah. it's the unbundling of those concepts into like specific community based and new kinds of uh, uh, community based uh, uh, proposals. Well, could you imagine like a mixed cloud for like the improvisation community, which has like an entirely different set of needs than like Absolutely. a DJ community? I mean, that's really how music should be kind of working. In these Absolutely, kind of, like- but I also noticed. I mean, we were in a we were in a, an article actually in Wired recently together, and mm. actually the reason I wanted to reach out to you was because you mentioned the one size fits all um, that you were mm. quoted as mentioning that. So it's, it's kind of fun to, to it's fun to dunk on that a little bit for those who. Uh, for those yeah. who aren't familiar with why why one might dunk on that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, I feel like, you know, if the, if the 90s in music was all about like CDs and this this kind of like crazy cash cow uh, for the for the music industry, then the 2000s hit and obviously we had Napster and LimeWire and, you know, it's basically piracy everywhere. Like, you know, the industry just went and nosedived. Uh, and then, you know, Spotify came along kind of late 2000s, 2010s. And I feel like, you know, 
in a way, they they did help solve piracy. So I think they did a great thing there in terms of actually, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. recognizing the value inherent in, in, in music and in creating music. Um, but in a way, they kind of like, I feel like, you know, it, that was such a huge thing to do that they had to just focus on like getting something that worked for everything, you know, yeah. that, had, that, that worked for kind of the whole music industry. And in doing so, you know, I would argue created quite a homo- homogenous experience that's kind of more ultimately geared towards major labels. And, uh-huh. you know, it, 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 it works in the same sense of like, you know, going to Walmart works if you want to, you know, just buy one thing from like a hundred thousand things. But I feel like it's um, somewhat limited in the, I guess, ultimately, like, in a cultural sense of like, I don't feel when I listen to Spotify, like I'm really connecting with an artist or a creator. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't feel like I'm sort of like getting a behind the scenes sort of feeling of like, what they're really about or what they're doing or what they've been up to. Or, you know, I just feel like it's quite um, fairly like functional utility um you know just kind of doesn't really sort of does one thing well but doesn't really try and go beyond that uh and i think that you know that that in my mind we're now kind of entering this new phase you know arguably the 2020s where you know i think there will be different types of platforms and services and different models that start to emerge um Mm -hmm. i think things around you know shared ownership and what what jesse is doing uh with with variant fund is incredibly interesting. Um, I think that uh, uh, I haven't checked in for a while, but there was a company in Berlin called Resonate that was doing some interesting stuff. Uh, yep. I think you know, just in general, that idea that like, you know, mm. how can we kind of move beyond just the simple like I play a track and that's about all the interaction I have with a particular artist, and that's kind of the the, the end of it. You know, I think that there's there's so much more to music and in our world like club culture than just that yep. yeah absolutely and it, it seems i mean from my perspective where i've been particularly aggressive about spotify i agree with you in, in terms of uh spotify being a natural or like literally blossoming out of piracy culture in an attempt to solve mm. that problem and i'll give them that yeah. absolutely um but it, it it seems to my uh to, to me at least that stripping the contextual elements has been a very deliberate um, uh, uh, move on Spotify, Spotify's part, right? Like from the beginning, it was very difficult and it still is quite difficult to discern, you know, where something comes from, right? Like what label it's what on. What label it's from. It's almost like yeah. it's a very disorienting experience that ultimately leads you towards like infinite playlists. And, you know, and of course the volume available is, is, is mm. dizzying uh, and, and yeah. worthwhile, but but I mean, it's funny. We've been uh, I've been having this this argument this week because, fortunately, and we'll get into it. You know, I think that discourse around um, you know some of the negative effects of of the Spotify model has started actually accumulating. Right? Like I remember being the tin hat guy years ago, mm. uh, uh, warning about some of this. I was actually on the board of Resonate for a long time, for example. Um, but uh, uh, it's starting to percolate to the point whereby people, I think understand that there's a problem there. Um, Mm. Part of the challenge though, that I think speaks more to what you guys are doing um, is that oftentimes, you know, I think there's a limited imagination, right? Where people look at the Spotify model um, and kind of, there's a certain fatalism to it, right? Call it like a streaming fatalism 
mm. where people mm. now, because Spotify was so successful in capturing the last 10 years, um, mm. you know, see that possibly, you know, the greatest reform that could occur for communities of place and purpose um, mm. would be to, you know, force Spotify to pay double the per stream rate or something like this, which one, they can't do. Um, and number two, I don't, I still don't think gets to the root of the problem, which is more what you're talking about, right? Like there is a lot of music that does not benefit from this kind of clearinghouse warehousing um, of files, you know, that there's so much more there. I mean, you mentioned earlier, like the idea of geographic bundling. Um, I've actually proposed that to a number of, of large companies in the past, right? This idea that, you know, the place that something is from is one of the most valuable things about it, right? Like historically, you remember mm, scenes yeah. that come from Detroit or New York or London or Berlin or wherever it might be, right? Like Kinshasa. Yeah. Um, to strip that element is losing, I mean, so much value, right? And so, so thinking about different models, yeah, thinking about different models that can narrow down and think about, you know, what is the actual value of people's experience of music seems to me like, to be honest, it's really low-hanging fruit because most of those things aren't represented by these clearinghouse streaming models. Yeah. Yeah, and there, there's there's so much more potential, I think, in, in music creativity. You know, we so we, we recently launched a, a live element to the platform in um, in April and just seeing, like, the, cre the creative ways that people are using it is, is, is amazing. You know, obviously, you've got DJ sets, you've got radio shows, but there's now people doing tutorials. There's people who are um, teaching other people how to DJ on it. There's people who are like, the, the other day we had somebody like making a beat and then like flipping a remix like that somebody sent in like the vocals for and just live kind of on the fly. Um, and, and that's just been so uh, amazing to see because I think, you know, I think especially us internally with Mixcloud as well, like just having this new dimension to the platform, um, it's just kind of opened up all these possibilities of like different ways that, that, that people could use it. Yeah. And on that, I mean, this is perfect time for you to, for you to raise that because I mean, how I, I would assume that your launching of that particular, uh, of that particular feature um, was a response to to COVID, and I wonder, you know, in was it or did, was it just like good I assume, timing? I assume. Uh, yeah, I would love to be able to say, yeah, we just timed it perfectly. <laughs> no, <laughs> no we, <laughs> okay, yeah, timing was impeccable. Yeah. No, we, uh, we 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 had we had been talking about like live streaming for I don't know, like five or six years, and just never really had time to. Um, to build it. I mean, we're, we're, we're a relatively small team. We're about 40 people. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, when the coronavirus started, started to hit, like a lot of our community wrote into us and they're like, do you guys have a live streaming platform? Like, do you have a live streaming component? Like, can we, can we live stream? Uh, and so it became really obvious very quickly that we needed to do something there. Uh, and so we did a, a hack week, uh, internal hack oh, week wow. and kind of just kind of, yeah, some of the team just like loaded up on energy drinks, just like smashed through it. And, How fast yeah. did you guys put that together? It was it was three weeks from start to finish, which is oh, like wow. the fastest I've ever seen them go. And and yeah, absolute kudos to 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 the product team at, at Mixcloud on that because they 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 smashed it. And I think the the reception from the community has been incredible as well um, for for a few different things because. 
one thing is we do 320 kilobytes uh, audio. Um, so, so it's the highest cool. audio quality of any live streaming platform, higher than Facebook, higher than Instagram, higher than Twitch. Um, wow. We do the licensing component to it as well, just like the, the traditional Listen Again mixed out. So any mm-hmm. um, uh, copyrighted songs that are played on a live show will be fingerprinted, uh, you know, engagement tracked, and then royalties paid out. So we do that, which as far as I'm aware, nobody else is doing. Yeah, um, and then we're building in the, the kind of ability now to um, archive the audio from the live stream. Uh, so after you've gone live, you'll be able to archive it legally. It's all, again, licensed. And you'll be able to have that up on your profile. Uh, and then the final piece is we're kind of exploring the idea around doing um, uh, ticketed live streams because mm-hmm. so many creators at this point in time, like especially in the DJ side, you know, they've been cut out of a huge you know, portion of their regular income because nobody's mm-hmm. really playing gigs or festivals or anything like that. When you say that you put it together in three weeks, um, to validate as well that it's one of those kind of like overnight successes take many years, right? Like yeah. <laughs> presumably too, you were able to to start a fully functioning live streaming service that was legal and above water. Well, because they did all the hard Because you've done all the, yeah, you yeah, laid those yeah. foundations in advance. Exactly. And I think exactly. that's, yeah, yeah. It's a pretty powerful lesson as well, because I mean, when we've had, when we've been discussing COVID in a sense, you know, one of the the kind of analogies that has been used or that we've been using at least is that COVID through basically devastating life as we know it in, in, in the short term has really exposed, you know, which foundations you can build stuff on and which foundations are rotten. Right. And so mm. just want to, I just want to validate that as like maybe a learning moment. Um, that when yeah, you build yeah. foundations such as you guys have done, you get to you get to like make new features in three weeks um, that that don't involve you know crazy takedowns and and silences you know because I know that people on Twitch for example who've been trying to do stuff like this are are very discontent with their experience exactly because they don't have those licenses in place. But you also have to have a really engaged development team who's gonna who's like yeah we're gonna just like push through and do this absolutely. in three weeks. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, it was, it, yeah, you're, you're totally right. It was a combination of like the, the development team was just like, they were itching to, to build it. Um, but then it, it does, it builds upon the kind of 10 plus years of work that we've done in terms of like building, securing the licenses, building out the reporting pipeline, integrating with audio fingerprinting technology, like all those other pieces kind of are the, the foundational pieces. Yeah, I just was wondering how, how what your experience has been with the kind of like live performances. How how has that played out? Have your performers been happy with the reception? Has the audience felt engaged? Or does it feel like a kind of pale comparison to a kind of festival experience? Or, or is it even not fair to make that comparison and just to see it as something different? Yeah, I think it, it, it's always going to be tough to, to compare it to an actual live in real life kind of experience because arguably that at least in my opinion is kind of experiencing one of the the high points of music you know in person mm-hmm. in the flesh kind of surrounded by a crowd which obviously no nobody's doing right now um mm-hmm. but i think you know it, it, what, what what has been interesting is like um getting a bit of an insight into i guess kind of like people's backyards, bedrooms, living rooms, like wherever they are, uh, getting a like, you know, insight into all these different corners of the world as well. I think what one thing that's I've been 
absolutely loving is like going to our, our, our live page and then, you know, there'll be somebody like doing a broadcast from Lima in Peru playing like some digital cumbia. And I'm just like, wow, mm-hmm. this is like, I would never have normally stumbled across this or uh-huh. like a bunch of like bars in Japan um, are obviously kind of shut down right now, but they do these streams, I guess it's evening their time, but kind of mid afternoon London time. And they're just playing like classic old school New York hip hop. And I'm just like, it's such a, um, uh, a fun thing to kind of, I guess I, I would, if to me, it feels like if you had, you know, the old school radio dial and you were kind of like tuning it around and trying to find something interesting to listen to, that's mm-hmm. kind of where it feels like for me right now. Um, and I don't think, I don't think it's going to like ever kind of measure up to total live experience in the flesh but I think it's a really fun way to kind of, you know, dip into bow, kind of look around and listen to what is coming out of different places and different corners of the world. Mm-hmm. And it makes a lot of sense. I think with, you know, as you said, the, the, the legacy of, of, of DJs broadcasting music to people um, from a remote location, like through airwaves, like there's a strong, mm. there's a strong legacy of that that doesn't, I think, fall into the kind of, I, I was described on Twitter the other day. I described it as like the skeuomorphic kitsch of, you know, uh, I remember there was an organization here called High Snobiety that released some paper the other day that had the most insane language that was like, you know, the world is going to, we are, we are now ready to embrace the virtual rave. There is no longer a difference between, you know, seeing something in person or seeing it from your bedroom. It was the, honestly rubbish. Uh, I have to like, uh, confess in a way that, you know, since COVID, I've been attempted to be a very a vocal advocate against, in a sense, a lot of uh, hyperbole on the power and potential of, of live concerts, right? So this is very different to maybe a radio model in which I think that what you're doing and also what in the past kind of boiler room has successfully done, right? Is like they've, they've demonstrated that if you weren't there, there's still a whole bunch of value to hearing that set after or or if you aren't there or or seeing it in real time even better right you're listening to the free version of this podcast if you would like to hear the full version and support this series please visit patreon.com/interdependence this podcast is ad free and only possible through patron support thank you uh-huh.